Welcome, everybody, to the Energy Advisors Show. Glad to have you with us today. I'm your host, Rex. Rex, that energy guy. Glad to have you along for the conversation. Really excited about today's guest, and I think you'll learn a lot of what's happening in the world of solar. But before we get there, of course, we want to thank our sponsors from Solar Energy Partners. Uh, if you're going to do solar, You've got to make sure you get the right team to do that with the right partner. And I really like what they do. They service across most of the states in the United States. And they're they're really meticulous in getting not only your installation done, but getting all the tax information, that kind of stuff. So let me connect you with them. If you're interested, go to my website, uh, energyadvisors.today. Fill out the form. I'll get you connected over to them. They're fantastic folks. All right. So today I've got a great guest coming on. You know, we talk about all kinds of things, different angles. You know, there's endless amounts of things to talk about in energy. We've been doing a lot on solar lately, and that's okay because we've got a lot of mix coming. But today I've got a um, a great guest that it, uh, I'll let him do some introductions of his credentials because he's got a long list of them and doing some very interesting things. But I'd like to welcome to the program today, Gilbert Michoud. Um Gilbert, how are you today? I'm doing great, Rex. It's great to be here and uh, happy to chat with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, let's get things back. I mean, we don't have to roll back to whatever year you were born. I'm not going to guess on that. That would be sort of rude. But let me uh, have you start off by uh, telling our audience a little bit about yourself, um, you know, kind of your educational path, the courses you, the courses you teach, uh, what you're working on currently, et cetera. Let's, let's learn a little bit about Gilbert before we start talking about policy and all that fun stuff. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so I'm originally from Maine. I went to school for math, actually. Uh, I wanted to be a baseball statistician. I was a big sports guy <laughs> growing up. Um, and uh, about halfway through undergrad, I switched my major to economics. I was interested in environmental and energy economics, but it wasn't sort of my pointed interest at that time. Okay. And then what I ended up doing was I, I got a job after that. I worked at this big business journal and uh, the the guy interviewing me sort of sat me down and said, hey, you know, we cover manufacturing, food and beverage, different sort of industry sectors. What do you want to cover? And I said, I'll take a stab at sort of the energy and power industry. That sounds fun. So my job as like a 22 year old guy was to to get, you know, CEOs of utilities and big energy companies, et cetera, on the phone and kind of talk shop with them. And it was actually really, you know, a really great learning process. I was, you know, learning about these cool wind projects they were building here and these solar projects they were building there, electric vehicles, all this sort of advanced energy technology. Um, so it was really fun. That was my first job. I ended up actually leaving the job and then I went to graduate school for a master's in uh, economics and then a PhD in public policy uh, studying clean energy. And so, you know, fast forward six, seven years later, now I'm uh, an assistant professor of environmental policy here at Loyola. Uh, so I'm in Chicago uh, doing a lot of this work across the Midwest, frankly. I teach uh, energy law and policy and environmental law and policy. Those are the two core classes that I teach here. Okay. I'm at the School of Environmental Sustainability. We just started this school about two years ago. So uh, the university has this pointed interest in uh, pursuing uh, sustainability, teaching our students how to get out of the classroom and get engaged. And it's really fun to do this uh, policy work and sort of you know teach students that, hey, you can go provide testimony. You can go to neighborhood association meetings. We can bring students down to the state statehouse state to, to do this kind of work. So. Um, I try to do very applied and engaged uh, renewable energy uh, research. 
Um, I don't know if that's a, a good intro. Happy to talk more about. No, that's that's great. It helps yeah. us kind of that get a basis for our audience. So it's it's amazing what's happening, at least in my estimation. I mean, you see so many schools are going off on oh, going off sounds like a funny word are, are have started or really expanding their environmental studies for sustainability uh for advanced research in these areas i mean it's i think it's thrilling and so it, it's great to see that really high level inst institutions are investing in this because it's such a big impactful thing you know, here in the Western cultures, and then we can talk about this a little bit, in, but in the West, um, we take energy for granted. You know, we walk over to a wall switch, we flip on a light, it's there, right? You you don't think about how did it get there? How, you know, all of these things, how was it generated? You know, delivery systems and, you know, all the things that are happening. And now because of what's happening in the political landscape, the information, the internet, there's a big focus on it. And so I think it's really interesting. Now, I understand that out there in uh, Illinois, um, where you guys are at, um, there was a state level um, legislation that was passed in 2021 called the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act. So the CEJA. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how that happened? Because there's a lot of states that are going in that direction or trying to. So can you tell me what that entailed and what that's all about? Sure. Yeah, this has been a really big topic of conversation just across the state, but also like in my classes and with yes. my research group, right, where um, we're acknowledging that states have a lot of power in the energy policy realm. Mm -hmm. This is kind of like this federalist system that we have in the U.S. There's obviously a lot of power at the, the federal level, too, but opposed to some other countries, for instance, I think we have a relatively weaker uh, sort of federal or central government. And we're seeing states take a lot of leadership or maybe lack thereof, right, um, on these climate and, and, and energy type goals. So uh, yeah, the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, or, you know, as we call it, CJA here, uh, is really one of the most like ambitious and, and equity focused uh, energy bills in the entire country at the state level, just for some numbers to give you a sense of uh, how people sort of feel about this and the bipartisan support that it had. So it passed 83 to 33 in the House and 37 to 17 in the Senate. So it had okay. really widespread support off of many years of conversations around clean energy in Illinois and kind of a Midwestern leader, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to some of these other uh, states that are maybe more laggards when it comes to clean energy policy in the region. Uh, so it's been around for about a couple of years at this point, Rex. This was signed uh, into law in September of 2021. Okay. And it is a huge bill. It's almost like literally uh, almost a thousand pages. There's wow. a lot of different pieces around renewables and transportation, et cetera. I'll give you a couple highlights. Okay. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, we might have to boil this down to a few <laughs> uh, smaller pieces. Yeah. So um, with respect to, energy and sort of emissions, what CJA does is it puts Illinois on a path to 100% zero carbon energy by 2050. So that includes nuclear, right? Okay. And it has more pointed benchmarks of 40% renewable energy by 2030 and 50% renewable energy by 2040. Okay. So here we're talking largely about the solar and the wind. And right so now, to give you a sense of where we're at, we're at about 11, maybe 12% of renewable energy in the state. A lot of that is wind. We have a lot of big wind farms. 
sure. uh, in sort of the southern and uh, central parts of the state. So we've got a ways to go to get the 40% by 2030, right? That's right. six, seven years from now. Um, but we're in the process of deploying more projects. It also, from a transportation uh, perspective, is you know trying to sort of pull back uh, off of fossil fuels by expanding access to electric vehicles, charging stations, public transit, especially here in Chicago, right? And especially yeah. for um, sort of historically and economically disadvantaged communities. Again, the word equitable is right in the act itself. So it has a lot of pieces that are focused on these types of uh, communities and helping sort of disadvantaged folks not only have access to things like solar or an electric vehicle, but also to sort of give them jobs in these sectors, right? Right. Really important so that they're building sort of solar projects and energy efficiency retrofits. Uh, right. You yeah. know, I, I did have a question for you. Um, just recently, a couple of days ago, I got a letter from um, our local uh, power company here in, in Excel Energy. And they noted that our, um, they, they did a breakdown of what, you know, our energy mix comes from. Colorado is at, currently at 35.4% wind and our solar is at 4.8. So you mentioned what Illinois has for wind. What's your solar for, footprint look like? Yeah, I think uh, it's about one to 2% okay. solar at this point. And yep. like I said, we're 11 or 12% renewables as part of our total generation mix. Okay. And I think the breakdown is about 10% wind and 2% solar, give or okay. take. That yeah. makes sense. And well, we have hey. a lot of nuclear uh, facilities in Illinois. That's a big thing. So we're 52% nuclear. We're like the biggest oh. nuclear state in the entire country. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. 13% fact... of the generation in uh, of nuclear generation in the entire country comes from the state of Illinois. Wow. I didn't know that. That's awesome. Well, and that's an area that's overlooked quite a bit. Okay. So anyway, I didn't mean to sidetrack you there too much, but so let's get back to uh, CJ just a little bit more and have you explain some of the highlights of this uh, legislation. Yeah, no doubt. So um, like I said, there's, there's sort of these benchmarks that we're trying to get to in terms of zero carbon and renewable energy. Uh, the transportation piece is really big. They uh, have sort of instituted a rebate program for electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. So right now, the rebate, I believe, is about $4,000 for the purchase of an electric vehicle. And it scales down over time. So it's sort of incentivizing uh, action in the shorter term, right? So it scales down to $2,000 in 2026 and $1,000 in 2028. This can be coupled with any sort of federal level rebates right. as well, right? So. Right. Um, it's providing sort of this additional nudge at the state level for folks to say, hey, you know, you're incentivized at the federal level for this kind of investment already. We're going to kick in a few extra thousand dollars as well at the state level. So hopefully uh, it's incentivizing people to purchase electric vehicles. Coupled with that, of course, Rex comes like charging stations, right? So we need sure. to make sure that we're deploying this. And um, like I said, a lot of uh, a lot of this bill is around uh, workforce development, right? So okay. A lot of the the labor piece is important as part of this discussion, right? And especially as it relates to equity, like I was saying, you know, that what share of the jobs and wealth that are sort of generated by this new energy economy, if you will, is actually happening in sort of marginalized, disadvantaged communities. That could be anything from poor neighborhoods here in Chicago to sort of um, uh, coal-fired power plants that have closed in southern Illinois and sort of energy communities that are, are left behind through that lens, right? And so 
they're sinking a lot of money and investment in this bill into workforce development. They're building, okay. I think, 15 or so uh, new workforce hubs and this pre-apprenticeship program to basically train and create this pipeline of energy workers. So they're going through this process of figuring out where do we put these things? Who are the right sort of uh, trainers that we need to get in these rooms? Who are the people that need to be trained to work in sort of this advanced clean energy economy and uh, are doing a bunch of work right now to set up all these programs, which is really exciting, especially as someone uh, myself that does a lot of this like economic and workforce uh, so, modeling. So with this legislation and um, that was passed in 2021, is the funding coming from uh just in the general taxes? Did they create a new tax for this or how, how's the funding working on it? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, we're going to pay for it as citizens of the state. Okay. Um, but it's, it's pretty marginal. Um, I can dig out a number for you. I can't remember, but you know, we're talking about, you know, an extra five or 10 bucks on your uh, electric bill or something to that extent. Right. And so, right. you know, you have to sort of weigh the proper trade-off of, how much as a citizen or a ratepayer am I investing in this and how important is that and what benefits does it bring and what benefits does it even bring from a broader perspective like public health, like right. reducing asthma and like, you know, healthcare costs in the state sure. uh, and that type of thing. So some folks have sort of a narrow mind of, wait, this is going to raise my bill or what am I paying for? And you need to sort of like, you know, model and understand and disseminate those streams of benefits that people will derive from it too and say, hey, you know, we're talking about five bucks a month or something, but like, look at all the like positive jobs and emissions benefits and all that kind of stuff we're going to realize. Yeah, because we had legislation passed here in Colorado. And again, I I don't have every state's research done and what they're doing, but just for an example's sake, uh, the Public Utilities Commission approved and the, and the, the state passed a bill for electrification for transportation where um for each person's uh, residence's bill it's 37 cents a month and for businesses it's 97 and you know some people got upset like you talked about that but you know we've had these types of taxes and fees on our communications bills for decades i mean we've always paid these types of things and so it is for the good you know and it it's for some people it's hard to look past that but you know, nominal 37 cents um, a month for a resident. And then it's going to help us build out the infrastructure for EVs. And so, you know, I get get that that's going. So in the uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the job sector, because that really interests me. I recently did a very short uh, episode talking about uh, the expansion of solar uh, manufacturing here in the United States, uh, you know, the top five or seven, you know, people don't even realize there's now solar panels being built in six different states here in the United States. Um, some of these mm -hmm. are foreign companies, but they have U.S. manufacturing. But the most important thing is those manufacturing jobs are here in the United States. Yeah, exactly. Um, the workforce piece of this is huge. Uh, again, I mentioned I went to school for economics and I've been sort of doing a lot of policy work, but also really studying the economic implications of the energy mm -hmm. transition at large, right? And so uh, as someone who does a lot of this community engaged and applied research recs, like I'm working often with solar developers or wind developers that are trying to get projects cited and approved. And as part of that process, uh, they need to sort of have economic and workforce impact studies done, right? So sort of try to quantitatively discern hey, if we build this big solar farm in central Illinois or western Ohio or wherever, 
what are we talking about in terms of like construction related job development and operations related job development? What are these folks paid uh, in terms of wages? What does it mean in terms of tax impacts to these communities? All of these metrics are really important. So I do a lot of uh, modeling on this end of uh, things. And so, you know, in terms of like types of occupations, right? Like clearly solar photovoltaic installers and things like that are like pretty obvious, I think to a lot of folks. Sure. sure. We need a ton of engineers. Engineering is probably the, the biggest sector where we're going to see job growth or like even job demand, right? And mm -hmm. I'm talking about the entire supply chain, like from the from the PV manufacturers and we have the engineers that are working on those types of sites or at those types of facilities uh, to the electrical engineers and other types of folks that you need to actually uh, build these types of projects, civil engineers, software engineers, all of these folks are really important. And these are pretty high skilled and high paying jobs. Mm -hmm. And so um, oftentimes what we've seen is you know, there's sort of like skills gaps uh, of interest where we're saying, hey, we need the, the supply and demand aren't really matching. Right. Right. We need to sort of make sure that we have enough supply for this new demand of all these big clean energy projects that are getting built all across the country. And how do we make sure that we have folks that have the certification that have, you know, anything from a, an associates all the way up to a master's degree in engineering? Um, and offer them these these types of jobs that are really good, sustainable, and, and well-paying jobs. This is a thing that every state is trying to sort of grapple with right now to make sure that we have a prepared workforce. So um, I don't know. This is just a really important thing that I think a lot of folks are thinking about. I think, you know, as an academic, we have work to do too at four-year universities, community colleges, training centers to make sure that we're also being responsive to like the new changing demands of this sector and offering the relevant types of programs to potential students too. Right. So right. Um, I'll stop there and see if you have any thoughts. Well, but yeah, uh, this is just important. Yeah. No, it's very important because let's just take solar, for instance, setting aside all the other sources of energy, but, and it's because we've been doing a lot on the podcast on solar lately, but if you look at the technologies to deliver so, um, solar, it's not just PV, you've got inverters, you've got meters, you have, all kinds of two-way meters and things of that. Um, I just spent a, an hour and a half this morning talking to some gentlemen that do some portable and the battery technologies and stuff. So the engineering jobs are going to be crazy because now you have an industry that has so much um, potential, so much growth in it. And if you just take the subcomponents of these systems and focus on them, there's enormous opportunities for improvement and enormous amount of jobs that it will take to deploy that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, you think of a solar panel or a solar module, right? And we're talking about building a utility scale solar projects. Yeah. Think about the scale of racking systems and wiring and yeah. all of this other equipment that you need, even sort of like truck transportation, right? And like all of these types of supply chain or related type impacts are really large. Yes. And even things like professional services, we need lawyers who understand energy policy and law. We need accountants to help out with the, these types of projects and folks that do the financial side of things. Wow. Um, all of these people are going to be affected in a positive manner by this new deployment of projects, right? Well, and it's another one to interrupt and add there is just the tax implications because you go state by state, there are different various um tax in, uh, and incentives. There are different types of programs, like you talked about your EV incentives. So, I mean, here in Colorado, they just did a lottery system for 
um, electric bikes, so e-bikes. And if you were to qualify this, you had to have lower income uh, for a household. And then it was a drawing, but it was tremendously successful. I mean, they blew it out as far as applications really quick. I think there was $25 million or $20 million that were applied to this grant. And so wow. the tax implications, because I can tell you this, things, and you were correct when we started the, the conversation this afternoon, there's more going on on a local basis. Yes, we all have the federal stuff, but each state is at different various stages of technology adoption life cycle where policies are catching up. And so if I were to build something today, XYZ widgets that were in the industry, I'm going to have different impacts and tax ramifications almost state by state. And so the professionals to understand that, I mean, there, there's a lot of spaghetti to sort through for someone to understand what their qualifi what qualifications they um, need to meet for some of these programs, uh, rebates. It's it's actually kind of a thrilling and exciting time, I think. Yeah, I've been super plugged into this as someone who went to school for economics and studies energy policy, right? Like what are the right. tax implications and impacts? And they're, they're sort of more hotly debated or contentious types of policies, right? Because they deal with government revenues. Mm -hmm. If we're offering a tax credit or incentive, those might be lost dollars, uh, you know, depending on what we're talking about, right? And so right. not every politician likes to offer tax credits for renewable energy, but some states do it better than others and some states yes. offer more than others, right? And so uh, these are really interesting conversations. I'm doing a lot more work now, Rex, on the other side of things where we're talking about the positive property or sales tax impacts that are fed into communities from deploying these big renewable energy projects, right? And so um, what I've seen in a lot of sort of the Midwestern states or even a lot of the Southern states in the U.S. is that um, the politicians, and I'm not saying that they don't care about emissions or environmental stuff, but a lot of them are just sort of piggybacking off of the economic and jobs and tax piece of, of this and saying, hey, this is an opportunity for us to, to see development here, broadly speaking, and to realize many, many millions of dollars of positive tax revenues that are going into rural communities that are helping them in the sort of post-COVID world, or maybe they're economically struggling for other types of reasons. Maybe they're coal-impacted communities, right? And so, um, you know, if you say, hey, we're going to build this utility-scale solar project that's going to be 300 megawatts in community X, and we're going to, this project is going to pay, I'm making a number up, but it's pretty reasonable, $1.5 million of property taxes per year into this community. And that's going to go directly to your kids at schools and public services and fire and police and all this kind of stuff. Then you got people that are like, well, I'm not sure if I want to stare at the solar farm or I'm not sure about the energy or environmental piece of this, but Hey, you got me sold on like the jobs and the tax piece of this. Right. That's where you like are catching a lot of people, I think on the economic development side of things. Yeah. So let's, um, let's pop over for a minute and talk about, uh, what uh, Siege is doing as far as the disadvantaged and and sort of the equity piece, because I know we, we kind of touched on that in the beginning. So what are some of the specifics that are helping for disadvantaged? Yeah, a lot of it is uh, siting, right? Where are we putting solar? Where are we giving opportunities to folks? Where are we putting charging stations? Uh, and a lot of those types of things. And we're trying to sort of be mindful that we're not just building it in the more affluent neighborhoods. That we're right. also building it in places where historically maybe people haven't had access mm -hmm. uh, to these types of technologies, people uh, or areas where 
uh, you know, the, the pollution or they haven't really uh, seen sort of the, or they've sort of bear born more of the cost, I guess, okay. of uh, historical energy uh, generation. Right. Right. And um, a lot of it, like I said, is about workforce development too. So okay. we are building these workforce hubs. We're trying to basically train uh, diverse populations, soon to be released incarcerated persons, et cetera, for jobs in solar and wind and energy efficiency, which I think is super unique and super yeah. uh, powerful. Uh, so that's really important. And um, yeah, I think it's I think it's about opening market access to folks that otherwise or historically haven't had access. And I think it's also giving them opportunities to work uh, in this sector. I think those are the two biggest things that we're seeing as part of okay. CJ. So, and with CJ also, does it provide any like grants or scholarships for people that are disadvantaged, or what's the angle on yeah. that? Good point. I forgot to mention that. So there's a piece of this, which is really unique and really cool, frankly, where they're offering scholarships to nice. children of former coal economy workers. So coal miners, coal fired power mm -hmm. plant workers, et cetera, that maybe have been impacted by the renewable energy transition in a negative way where maybe you've lost your job or you've had to sort of reshuffle and work in some other type of sector. Right. So uh, the children of those folks, uh, I don't know the amount, so don't ask me that, but I know yeah, that they're fine. getting some sort of scholarship to go to universities uh, and get trained in, in you know, whatever they want to study. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, I think the public, um, there's so much uh, education that needs to take place because when you see the the political snippets here, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to build a energy economy, they, that, it doesn't go any deeper than that. Oh, well, okay. And the, and the first reaction is, well, everybody's going to build solar panels. Well, no, that's... It's not everything. There's yeah. an enormous amount that goes into this. And, you know, I look at this right now where energy is, you know, I, I've spent three and a half decades in tech before I, I started this podcast. And to me, this looks like some of the um, epiphany points in the marketplace with like technology adoption life cycles and things that have happened in the computer industry that we're on these curves. I mean, the computer industry went from centralized computing to um, decentralized computing, distributed models, back to centralized to the internet and things like that. So I think that's my old man perspective here. I think that's a lot what's happening. And I think there's a lot of energy around that because there are so many opportunities. And you, you had software centers that popped up because of that. You know, San Jose, Austin, Texas, Boulder, Lots of places where these work hubs created and it actually improved the lives of so many because those technologies were being researched and developed and the jobs were happening. So it's exciting that Illinois has jumped on that to uh, to make set an anchor to be able to say, hey, we're, we want to participate in these workforce hubs. Yeah, exactly. Um, and a couple of things I forgot to mention, Rex, if I may. Um, sure. That. Yeah, the, the nuance and the sort of the multiplier effects and the sort of the, the deeper discussion around this stuff matters, right? And so we're talking about access and building clean energy projects and those type of thing. I think that from a political perspective, our elected officials are realizing that these are sort of carrots to drive other types of economic development too, right? Sure. We're talking about tech, we're talking about data centers, manufacturing facilities, Google, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera. Sure. Hey, come to our state, come to our city set up your data center here, 
we'll give you this uh, access to uh, renewable energy. You have sustainability missions, you have renewable energy targets. You can come here, you can be 100% renewable powered, bring the jobs and the tax dollars with you, right? And so I think folks are starting to realize sort of these ancillary discussions about, okay, renewable energy, okay, we set up this state level target or we have a local level goal or something, but there's a lot of other sort of unfolding pieces to this, which I think folks are starting to see now as this unfolds before our very eyes, which are really important. Uh, and the the dollars that these types of projects are bringing to me, communities are like incredibly impactful. Yes. One of my students just uh, finished a thesis project looking at the property value impacts of utility scale solar. A mm-hmm. lot of folks have been sort of anecdotally saying, hey, you know, you build this project in our community, our property values are going to go down. We're worried about what this means. We did modeling. We looked at 70 utility scale solar projects across the entire Midwest. We had thousands of observations and um, housing prices over time. And what we found was that it actually raised property values by a tiny bit because of the investment that this is bringing into communities. Communities that are seeing these types of wind and solar farms are actually getting a lot of tax revenues and, and sort of redeveloping their schools and, like I said, other public services. Uh-huh. And so they're actually driving a lot of really important economic development in these communities. And we showed that in that study. So I just want to throw a couple of other uh, things at you. I thought that were one of them. No, that, that's it's really important for people to understand. Uh, we have a community here in Colorado in the metropolitan area that is now um, powering their all of their city uh, operations with solar. And it's it's actually helping them attract people to that community. And this is a community that's kind of gone through a redevelopment. And it's it's exciting to see that happen. And it's bringing that, you know, there's always a drag, you know. So if you have, a, like we've been talking, if you have a centralized workforce and a, a hub of something, there's all the drag that goes all the way down to, you know, service businesses and, you know, churches and, and all these things that come along with it that, um, I'm glad people like you are looking at this because a lot of people aren't understanding that that drag is enormous. It's not just it's not just the engineering jobs or the assembly for the panel jobs. It's the entire drag that comes with it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and one other thing I'd like to talk about, uh, if I can, is sort of sure. the, you know we're talking about equity and inclusion and also sort of like energy justice and democracy type issues. I think okay. that are really important as as it relates to this, right? And so. Uh, I have a big project right now that's funded by the solar office at DOE, the U.S. Department of Energy. And we've been trying to sort of better discern how people are learning about clean energy, if they're getting engaged and involved with, uh, again, we're talking about mostly utility skill projects uh, for this research, where uh, we've been interviewing landowners, we've been interviewing um, uh, local officials, we've been talking to solar and wind developers. We're trying to understand sort of the process of how do you pick a community? How do you engage with the community? Does the community sort of engage back with you? Do they go to the hearing? Do they provide testimony? We're trying to sort of learn about how people are learning about these projects and how they're sort of helping make decisions or maybe lack thereof, right? Around citing and approval and sort of the social acceptance kind of pieces to this. Mm-hmm. I've spent many years doing these types of interviews and talking to locals around this. I've spent many years writing about community solar projects too. I actually wrote my uh, doctoral dissertation on community solar. And so we're trying to understand basically how people are learning about projects, how these projects might be providing access, equity, and inclusion, 
and um, and the sort of sort of uh, economic and racial equity sort of pieces to this as well, right? Pollution burden yeah. neighborhoods, uh, et cetera. Um, and so as we're going through this transition uh, toward adoption, how are communities getting involved and engaged and sort of driving the car, if you will, of uh, of building projects? I think that piece is incredibly important too, right? It's right. not just, hey, a big investor on the electric utility is gonna build this big project here, or a big developer is gonna build a big project uh, and sell it to Amazon or something. Um, how do we make sure that we're all also engaging with locals uh, and sort of acknowledging what they want as part of the clean energy transition? Well, I, I know another aspect of this that people don't understand is that the policy at state level uh, and, and what's happening with our public utilities commissions. Um, there is so much politics that are involved in this. You know, the the power companies need to make a profit that takes them eight to nine years to get a return on any new construction and they're trying to suppress things uh people are trying to keep them the utility companies out of um of um installing solar on residences you know as part of mm -hmm. their so there's a lot of policy issues that just haven't surfaced and i know like here in colorado they have a cap um regulation that the utility can call a cap on a particular development, neighborhood, zip code, whatever you want to define that cap that says, we don't want any more solar in there. And it's because they're losing their profit base. And so these issues need to be brought forth because there's a struggle with the, I guess you would call it the establishment in energy. And that's what's happening with some of the things that you're working on, these new developments, the equity, the justice, all of these things. It's it's like an old school versus the new school. It's it's very interesting, and I don't think people understand what's happening behind the scenes because not all of that is interesting news. Yeah, you're exactly right. This is you know, as someone who studies public policy, a lot of what public policy really is is trying to understand some of those money lobbying power struggles, right, and the debates that are going on, right, in state legislatures and, and other places across the country, and so. Um, yeah, electric utilities have sort of long lobbied against policies that encourage distributed PV, for instance, or rooftop solar, right? Yeah. It's directly sort of cutting into their profits. And if you think about, you know, I, I think about sort of historical institutionalism, how have these like companies formed over time? You have had these utilities that have been around for a hundred ish years to provide electricity to Americans. They've largely been monopolistic. Yes. Or, I guess, regulated monopolies type organizations, right? And so right. Um, I don't know if I want to say necessarily that utilities are anti-renewable or something, but I think they're they're anti-losing control. A lot of what they're doing is about maintaining control. So they'll cite things like, hey, you know, all this renewable energy coming on the grid or other folks that are owning their own systems is going to cause grid complications or something like net metering is like a form of a regressive tax where it's taking a a percentage, I'm sure you've talked about this on the podcast of, you know, folks that have solar and folks that don't have solar and, and sort of what that looks like. But ultimately what I think is that it's really a threat to corporate profits, right? And so exactly, they're using sort of their money and their lobbying and corporate dominance uh, in state legislatures all across the country and donating to campaigns and being sort of very large uh, campaign contributors to, um, in many ways, just sort of get what they want, right? And mm -hmm. 
they don't want to sort of lose control over this market and end up being just like a poles and wires company. They have these big generation assets. They have big coal and nuclear, yeah. uh, et cetera, power plants all over the country and don't want to sort of lose sight of that. Well, and here's something that I don't think the average person um, thinks about. We're we're coming full circle. Okay. So when you look at power and energy in the United States, well, it's anywhere in any developed country. We went from a distributed model where everybody built their, did their own. So whether they burned wood, um, dung, coal, kerosene oil, or whatever, they were distributed. You you basically created your own energy. Then we had the things come about of the turn of the century of the 1900s, and we moved from the DC to AC, and, and then we get into centralized. Well, now we got a centralized model. Well, okay. And that centralized model has existed for 100 or so years, and now they've got control of things. There's big money involved. And all of a sudden, if you have solar and wind available for everybody's home, you're moving to a decentralized, to a distributed model again. So we've come full circle. We saw this in, in software, hardware, computers. I mean, it's the same thing. And so there is a lot of fear there. There is a lot of control issues. And so, you know, it's not just a political left or right issue. It is an economics issue with the power companies because they're not going to have this kind of, kind of control. I mean, uh, as soon as my batteries are installed, I'm independent. I, I actually have flipped the relationship I have with my local utility. Um, I sell them my extra energy right now. And so I'm no longer their customer. They're my customer. And here they've had for more than 100 years, not for me and, and, uh, individually, but they've had a non-consensual relationship with me. <laughs> I, I get to do business with you, like it or not. And now I flipped it. I flipped the table. So I think there's a lot of FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt going on in the marketplace. I think that public policy is going to be important because one of the um, fair or not criticisms of currently with like current solar systems and those things, it's kind of been referred to as Lexus energy. You know, it's only affordable to those who are wealthy or, or have resources. And we're starting to see a lot more policy changes to help those who might be disadvantaged or there isn't an equity situation because right now, let's just face it, it's expensive. And so that kind of transitions me. And now I've gone on this long tirade, I get on a soapbox here and there. <laughs> but um, in a policy perspective, what policy solutions do you see um, working to help accelerate some of this energy transition because it's coming it doesn't matter you know it's it's going to the economics are there to make it happen so what kind of policy things do you see that can help accelerate that yeah i think well just as a first thought policy is incredibly important i've sort of framed my whole career around this where right. we have the technology to do the stuff now we sort of need to um, influence and sort of show to our law and policymakers that this stuff is really important and that we need the right sort of incentives uh, and sort of political economy around energy, broadly speaking, to make this all happen, right? So right. in the classroom, Rex, you know, I'm always telling my students to get out, get involved, like vote, obviously, but take it many steps further. Uh, we're writing testimony and providing co uh, comments to DOE and EPA and all this kind of stuff. And this stuff really matters. So for folks that this wasn't obvious to like get out and get involved and wave the flag because it, it does matter. Um, with respect to policy, 
you know, there's a lot of different types of incentives. I, I would say as someone who's studied this for many years, uh, financial incentives are really uh, the most impactful drivers. And so we're talking about tax credits and rebate sure. programs and those types of things, or even, uh, you know, low interest loans, something that impacts your finances. A very right. simple example is, uh, hey, I want to put solar on my roof. If I do this without policy, maybe it takes me 20 years to pay off the system. But wait a minute, let's fold in the investment tax credit that's offered at the federal level. Let's right. fold in whatever state level financial incentives might be available. Boom, boom, boom. Now maybe my payback period is nine or 10 years, right? So that's like a very easy example to understand. Like policy is having a huge uh, change in terms of uh, making these investment decisions, right? So I say financial incentives uh, really work really well. Tax credits have shown and many been shown in many studies, including my own, to work really well. That's why we keep going to this system of at the federal level. We've scaled down the ITC, the investment tax credit, over time, and then we we renew it again back up to thirty percent. We've gone through this two or three times at this point, right? Tax right. credits work. Um, they are also sort of, uh, as I mentioned before, more hotly debated or contentious because there's a money piece to it. And so not everyone wants to offer tax credits for clean energy, utilities perhaps themselves, uh, or maybe more conservative leaning politicians, et cetera. So um, that is sort of the stickiness or the trickiness or the challenge with a lot of this. But um, I say strong financial incentives really yeah. work. Well, I, I have to uh, raise my hand guilty as charged. My incentive and first interest to do solar on my own home was financial. You know, yep. I'm getting to a point where it won't be too many more years. Hopefully, I don't know. We'll see a retirement. And I didn't want a, a utility bill during retirement. Right. And so my driving interest was was in looking at solar was financial. And I and I think it's important. Let's just call a spade a spade. People vote with their wallets. You know, mm -hmm. the easiest way to set policy is to follow the money. And so, you know, if you have something could be impactful positive or negative, people are going to pay attention to that. And so I think financial, I, I would agree with you. I think financial incentives are going to be the biggest gains. Now, of course, there are people out there who, you know, I don't want to upset anybody or make anybody cheer that have a hundred percent green agenda. Well, that's great. Um, but I think it, the impact is going to be more widespread when it's financial. So, um, you're you're really drilled into this as far as the public policy and these types of things. What do you see happening over the next, let's say, five years? I mean, I don't ever ask anybody to look past that because who knows what the world's going to be like, heck, maybe even in three years. But um, do you have any insights on what you think is going to be really impactful over the next five years? Yeah, um, it's a it's a tough question. I get asked it a lot, though. I think we're going to continue to see fights at the federal and state level around clean energy policy. And, and these things shift back and forth with sure. whatever party's in office, right? So right now we're doing a lot of great stuff with uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and the IRA and a lot of these other sort of big federal acts that are investing a lot in the grid and renewable energy and all of this great stuff that we've been talking about. This could be flipped on its head, right, with the next election cycle. And so these are things to be mindful of. What I get really excited about, Rex, is sort of smaller scale community and local innovation and maybe how that bubbles there. up the other way, right? Right. Top down federal or state policy that offers different incentives that uh, encourages folks to make decision A versus B or what have you. 
I'm really interested in sort of the the folks that live in rural communities, the folks that are members of electric co-ops or municipal utilities, the folks that have just figured out ways, oftentimes uniquely independent of policy, to do what they want to do. Loophole programs, crowdfunding programs, how can our city, how can even our neighborhood do Project X, right? And that stuff is really powerful because we're seeing that innovation sort of bubble up into models that can be deployed elsewhere. And that oftentimes even turn into policy down the road, right? Right. Hey, look at how these communities built these community solar gardens. This is really cool. The state doesn't even have community solar enabling legislation necessarily, but these communities uh, have figured out ways that they can build local solar projects and check some of the boxes of community cohesion and saving on their energy bills and getting people involved from a civic engagement perspective. And then that sort of snowballs into other communities as sort of this adoption uh, snowballs. And then maybe, you know, it actually works its way into policy where someone uh, at the state level might say, hey, look at all these like really cool projects that are going on. If we push this lever just a little bit harder and adopt formal enabling legislation, we're going to see all these job benefits that I've been talking about. We're going to see all these emissions and environmental benefits uh, in our state. We're going to see these tech companies maybe want to come into our state. And so I think that actually a lot of the great action is happening at the local community level and sort of maybe bubbling upwards toward policy. So I'm really paying attention over the next five years to answer your question at what cities are doing, at what rural communities might be doing, at what small electric co-ops might be doing, and how that might actually um, sort of turn into policy, if if you will, uh, down the road. Ah, that's exciting. You know, I throw this out because it's just, it's honestly what's in my heart. I. I honestly believe, and maybe I'm just too Pollyannish, and maybe now people aren't even old enough to remember what that phrase means, but I honestly think most people want a cleaner environment. I honestly think people would love to have as close to free energy as possible and 100% renewal because nobody wants, you know, nobody wants a dirtier planet. I, I, I believe that. I guess the question that comes to bear is how do we get there? And there are people who have all kinds of ideas on how we get there and at what pace. And unfortunately, some people get so stuck in their view of that, that it be that it makes it become an all or nothing type thing. And so I, I just don't believe anybody is rotten to the core. I think everybody wants a cleaner um, planet. Just the question is, how are we going to get there? Yeah. And so public, pub, excuse me, public policy plays such a big role in that because it's, we need to do some of these things for the good, you know, for, for you know, talking about funding um, different aspects through a utility uh, fees or taxes and those types of things. And so, you know, it's not a, it's not an easy answer, but I really honestly believe, regardless of anybody's political leanings on all kinds of other issues, that at the heart, if you were to sit down at the kitchen table and talk to them, you know, my grandfather was a rancher who lived out in a community of less than 1,500 people, and he was doing solar 40 years ago. And it's because he actually depended on the earth. You know, he counted on the weather. He counted on the rain, you know, that kind of stuff to make his living. And he always talked about how it was important to um, conserve. And, you know, he was doing recycling back way before recycling was anything interesting. So... I don't know. I, I believe in the good. And I think that public policy needs to be brought further because there is a lot of um, important impacts that it can have. And they're just 
I think it's hard in this industry right now because there's so many things going on. And like I said, misinformation or whatever you want to call it. But people need to understand that, that how impactful it is. Yeah, I agree. A lot of it is ideological. A lot of it is, I, I lived in uh, Appalachia for a while and like working in these communities. A lot of it is just sort of family and history traditions of uh, my grandfather was a coal miner and yep. my father was a coal miner kind of thing, right? And so um, it's it's interesting to see how we're moving forward, uh, but the sort of the stories and the anecdotes and the political economy, if you will, around this stuff matters a lot. Um, I think that we're seeing it from a lot of different angles. Mm-hmm. You have sort of the environmentalists or the more affluent folks that have had solar on their roofs for 20 years that are yeah. that are always into this, right? Right. But um, mm-hmm. we're seeing this really interesting movement, Rex, of like the hardcore libertarian community, if you will, in the southern states that are sort of just saying, I want to put solar on my roof. And I don't think that the government or my utility or anyone should tell me what I can or can't do on my own private property, right? And yeah. so you're having those folks that are installing solar too. Maybe it's from a financial perspective to save money. Maybe it's just from a anti, you know, government, anti-corporation kind of perspective uh, that is driving them to to do this to some extent as well. And so it's not just the the lefty, affluent, no. suburban white person that is doing this stuff. Everyone's doing it now from whatever angle that um, is sort of relevant to their story or their discussion. And so I think that uh, offers a lot of promise to, to how we see this unfold across the country. Well, you're talking to somebody who counts himself as a mainstream normal guy you know i don't have any extremes in any directions i looked into it from i've always been the person who's you know believed in conservation those types of things but i wasn't extreme in any direction and so you know you're talking to a guy that's probably just the the guy that's woken up recently and said hey there's better ways to do this and you know, I'm really excited about doing a lot of research about residential wind. And now, thanks to the Affordable um, infl- the uh, Inflation Act, nobody can prevent you from putting wind on your house, too. So I don't want to be obnoxious and have a 40-foot blade or spinning on the top of my roof. But <laughs> there are some great solutions that are coming there. So let me skip over, to because I know we got um, get on with your day. But I connected with you through the American um, Solar um society and um i wanted to ask you what you're doing with american solar energy society and the role that you're playing there real quick yeah good question and thanks for bringing that up so uh asis the american solar energy society is a, a large national nonprofit organization that largely focuses on solar as the name would indicate but really a lot of these other uh, sort of cleaner advanced energy technologies and so they do a lot of different things, educational programs and webinars and convenings, et cetera. There's a big annual conference uh, every year that usually rotates between Boulder, Colorado and some other cities. So we're actually gonna be in uh, Washington DC next May, which is super exciting, especially as someone who does policy work. Uh, and I actually serve as the uh, policy divisions chair for mm-hmm. ACES. So ACES has different sort of technical divisions. Sometimes it's focused on different technologies. Uh, sometimes on sort of a, a discipline or a topic, right? So there's an energy economics division, there's a sustainability division, et cetera. And there's a policy division at ASA. So I've been chairing the policy division there for uh, probably four or five years at this point. Right. And my job doing that is to share the research I'm working on, right? Share the modeling and the, and the policy sort of analysis uh, that I'm working on to sort of show what works 
uh, and uh, how other folks in other states can sort of learn what the leader states are doing and maybe mimic uh, those types of policies and to do that sort of education and mobilization uh, as well. Yeah. So I help run some webinars. I always bring teams of students to the conference and to a lot of the events that ASUS is doing. And I field questions from folks across the country that are saying, how does this tax credit work? How does, what's going on with the IRA? Am I eligible for the investment tax credit, the ITC, if I'm right. in Puerto Rico? You know, I answer sort of these like technical assistance kind of questions, which is really fun. Well, I will give my own testimony for um, the American Solar Energy Society. You know, they're located in my backyard here, just over the hill in Boulder. But it's a phenomenal resource for all kinds of educational purposes. And I don't think people understand you can actually have an individual membership that just unlocks Pandora's box. I mean, it's drinking from a fire hose if you're a novice, but what's nice is you get the updates and things. And so it's, I've read some of your stuff there. I, I think it's an enormous resource. And again, you know, solar is not the only solution, but they are involved with so many green topics. And so I will give out a shout to um, people if they're just even mildly interested to get a, um, an individual membership. It doesn't cost much. Yeah, it's a great society, a great association with a lot of great people. Um, there's there's a ton of organizations, of course, across the country that are plugged into this. What I really like about ASIS is people really care. They're really passionate about this stuff. And you have a lot of practitioners. Yeah. So I'm a part of a lot of societies that are other academics, right? Or, uh, you know, maybe government officials or something like that. Uh, what I like about ASIS is you have you have industry folks, you have folks that are on the ground doing these projects. You have a, folk, a lot of folks that are just homeowners with solar on their roofs and they want to get the good word out and get involved. And sure. so it's really fun for me to work with those types of uh, stakeholders, right? To mm -hmm. learn about what they're learning on the ground and how can my work, uh, where sometimes we're doing high level stuff or running these big you know, quantitative models that are hard to understand or something, how does it actually help inform what folks are doing on the ground? And so it's really fun, I think, for me to be engaged with them. That's great. Well, I yeah. appreciate your time today, Gilbert. It's been fantastic to uh, get some insights from you and have this conversation. I'm going to have you back. I mean, I have to. There's so many more things to talk about here. I know we only touched the tip of the iceberg, but I appreciate your time, the work that you're doing, the things that you're teaching your students and, uh, you know, the impact you're making. You know, I think together, you know, again, I'm not Mr. Pollyanna all the time, but I really believe that if together, if we were to to put our heads together and work on these things that uh, transitioning to cleaner source of energy is a reality and i'm excited now because i'm i with doing virtually very little i've already made myself independent uh, of my local power company and now they're my customers so i really appreciate what, what you're doing and so uh, any final remarks you have for us today for our listeners yeah, I'd, I'd uh, sort of echo what I said about, you know, getting involved and engaged, right? I do this as an academic. It's not necessarily even part of my job, to be frank. Uh, <laughs> my job is to, to teach my classes and uh, to, to publish research papers and to do service and advising and that type of work. Okay. Um, what I think is kind of unique uh, for me as a professor is I, I sort of call myself a pracademic, right? I'm doing this practical applied work as an academic. So um, working with the policymakers, working with the folks on the ground, working with different stakeholders, folks that are in power serving on uh, state energy commissions, doing that kind of stuff to, to sort of help make a real world difference, because mm -hmm. I think that's how I'm having an impact as an academic. I'm running the models and I'm writing the papers and I'm, I'm objective, right? I'm a scientist, 
but I'm informing the folks that work in environmental advocacy coalitions and that work for the clean energy industry and sort of equipping them with the data and the tools to make their arguments for better policy or see these projects come through the pipeline. And so um, that's just kind of my little spin on, on how I'm getting involved in making a difference. And I think everyone has that right or even duty, if you'd like, to, to get out there and sort of sounds cliche or, or cheesy, but to, to fight for what you believe in, right? Like I that's what our democratic system in many ways is is framed on. And so if you care about clean energy or any other sort of topic for that matter, go out and sort of wave your own flag and, and get involved. It makes a huge difference. So if you could, uh, just because I know there'll be some people interested in, could you give out your research group uh, website so they can uh, follow you there? And I know you're on social media, so looks like you're probably on uh, LinkedIn and I guess it's X now, you know, we always have to, you know, get the updates, but could you share real quick your website information? Yeah. Uh, I have a research group. I got nine or 10 students that work with me. Uh, it's called the Misho energy uh, policy research group. It's a very long URL, but that's what it is. So it's M I C H A U D is my last name and then energy policy research group.com. Um, so you can follow all my projects and work that I'm doing there. And yeah, you can connect with me on LinkedIn uh, and X or Twitter. I'm on there too. And I try to be pretty active in sharing my work uh, with the community. So always happy to make new friends, connect with me, and, and always happy to chat with folks. Yeah. Well, glad to have you today. I look forward to again having you on. And so folks, I think we'll call this a wrap for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. And if you are participating on any of the video platforms, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, check out our partnerships. Those are growing um, by the week. We're excited to be a voice in this industry. And we our goal is to be that place where you can get uh, the facts, the information, and stay connected. So until next time, I just always say, make it a great day. Thanks for your opportunity to tune in.